Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 170, This Fair White Rose. So, to recap very briefly, we're in 1461, and it's about the end of February. The Yorkist cause has taken something of a battering over the last two months. Two of their leaders, York and Salisbury, have been killed at Wakefield. And a vast Lancastrian horde swept like locusts, destroying everything they touched, until they reached St Albans, where Warwick waited to repel them. But instead... Margaret had won a second victory, putting Warwick to flight and leaving London wide open to Margaret and her captain Somerset. The one glimmer of hope for York was York's son and heir, Edward, Earl of March, who had defeated Tudors, father and son, on the Welsh border at Mortimer's Cross. Now, I've remarked that Richard of York seemed to make a number of critical mess-ups at crucial moments, such as his decision to leave Sandal Castle and to claim the throne in the way that he did. It's also worth noting that Margaret is a bit the same, tenacity and determination in spades, but a tendency to dither at the wrong moment. But now was the time to seize the prize, carpe that diem, Margaret. Certainly Warwick had thought London indefensible and fled to the west. And the rulers of London, well, they fully expected Margaret to appear at their doors and were preparing. They received Margaret's requests for food and sent a wagon train northwards. At which point, the Londoners themselves intervened. They intercepted the supply train, robbed it, and confiscated the keys to the city to allow no one to be able to come in. Now, there were positive and negative reasons for this. London had become a pro-Yorkist city. 
because of their antipathy to Henry and Margaret's economic policy and their promotion of foreigners, and through the rabble-rousing exploits of Warwick. On the other hand, they'd heard, just like everyone else, of what Margaret's army was like. As St Albans burned and howled in pain, they had no desire whatsoever for London to suffer the same fate. So caught between the proverbial rock and hard place, the mayor and city leaders asked Margaret to send folk to negotiate with the townspeople. By Monday the 23rd of February, a week after that battle of St Albans, Margaret was still dithering. Meanwhile, Warwick had reached Edward, maybe at Burford or Chipping Norton in the Cotswolds. Their problem now, quite apart from the fact they'd taken two drubbings and the Queen had a massive and now experienced army in the field, was that they were back to the status of poxy rebels, since they'd lost control of the King now. Now, they might be able to do something about gathering a new army, and in fact they had an army at their backs, but there was nothing they could do to change the fact that Henry was now King, they were a bunch of rebels with authority from neither God nor Parliament. Or was there? The legend is that when Warwick reached the young Earl of March, he was asked where the king was. He's right here, replied Warwick. You are the king. In fact, there's no way of knowing whose idea it was, Warwick, Edward, or the bloke who put the dogs out last thing at night. Though admittedly the last one is the least likely. But the point is that actually, by getting himself killed, Richard of York had done them all a favour. When he'd claimed the throne, it had come as a big shock and his actions, both before and after, had alienated him from the baronage whose support he desperately needed. But much of that was no longer a problem with his son Edward. No blame attached itself to him, but the arguments in favour of his claim still remained. By his victory at Mortimer's Cross, without Warwick or his father being there, Edward had begun to establish his own authority and reputation. So, Warwick and Edward and the bloke who put the dogs out last thing at night, agreed to march on London and have Edward crowned Edward IV. Then Yorkist and Lancastrian would once again be on equal terms. But they did agree that the bloke who put the dogs out last thing at night could stay in Chipping Norton to put the dogs out. You cannot but admire Warwick and Edward for their brio and elan. Just a few days ago, Warwick had been given a beating. Now they struck out for the capital, sending news ahead of their return. London, meanwhile, was in a fever of panic over the prospect of the Queen and her northern barbarians sacking the city. There were closing shops, burying treasure, locking up their daughters, all that sort of thing. So the prospect of Edward and Warwick was infinitely preferable. And for her part, Margaret probably had now lost her freedom of action. Besieging a reluctant city of London with the Yorkists approaching from the west really probably wasn't very attractive. And so in fury, the Lancastrians retreated northwards again, leaving another trail of death and destruction in their wake. Margaret had lost a golden chance to take control, and her two victories now seemed to have gained her very little. By the 26th of February, the advanced guard of the Yorkist army swept into London. We're told that London welcomed them. Quote, Let us walk in a new vineyard. Let us make a gay garden in the month of March with this fair white rose and herb, the Earl of March. This was a popular ditty on the streets. Edward Warwick, William Herbert, William Hastings, John Wenlock all entered the York's base in London 
Baynard Castle on the river on the western edge of the city walls, just as the Tower of London was on the east corner of the walls. On the 1st of March, George Neville, Bishop of Exeter, gathered a crowd in St John's Field just outside the walls. Henry, he thundered, had given up all rights to be king. And he listed a long story of offences by the hapless, hopeless and horrid Henry against the people and the realm. Was the worthless Henry still fit to be king? He roared. Nay, nay, roared back the crowd. Would they have the rightful King Edward, Earl of March, instead? Yay, yay, roared the crowd. Bills were posted all over London, declaring Edward's right. And on the 4th of March, Edward and a procession left Baynard's Castle and went to St Paul's Cathedral. And there again, George addressed the crowd, and again he asked them if they would have Edward as his king. Once again, the crowd roared, Yay! Yay! And so Edward, with his lords spiritual and temporal, which helpfully included the Yorkist Thomas Borchet, Archbishop of Canterbury, walked and rode to Westminster Hall, where Edward parked his young backside on the cold marble chair of the king's bench, a symbol of royal justice, where again he was acclaimed, thence to the church for a service in his robes and regalia. While not quite anointed and blessed, he was now king of England. No one imagined for a moment, though, that he didn't have a bit of work to do to make his claims stick. So there was no sitting around resting on laurels or resting on cold marble getting spots on his bottom. By Saturday the 7th of March, Warwick left London with the main body of mounted men marching to the West Midlands to recruit more. Norfolk was sent to East Anglia to raise a further army and meet them in the north as soon as he could. Falkenberg left on the 9th with the main body of foot soldiers and Edward left on the 13th. Margaret, Somerset and the Lancastrians had meanwhile taken up residence in York. Now was the time to end this once and for all with a great battle. And to be sure of victory, it was time to gather as massive an army as possible. Letters went out to all noble families. It told them that the great traitor, the Earl of March, quote, hath made great assemblies of rioters and mischievously disposed people and hath cried in his proclamations havoc upon all our true liege people and subjects, their wives, children and goods. Henry's subjects were asked to come to us in all haste possible to resist the malicious intent and purpose of our said traitor and fail not hereof. From north of the River Trent, men flooded to the banner of the Prince of Wales and good King Henry. South of the River Trent, Men flooded to the banner of good King Edward as he marched remorselessly north, joined by the Earl of Warwick, after a sharp and successful encounter with a Lancastrian contingent near Coventry. Once again, the Lancastrians were far more representative of England's nobility. Beside the Queen and King stood Northumberland, Exeter, Wiltshire, Devon, Rivers, Anthony Woodville, his son, Anthony Trollope. The numbers of men involved are genuinely big. I mean, we have suffered throughout the Middle Ages with me telling you about numbers of men that would look a bit feeble at a weekday match for Plymouth Argyle, let alone a scary invasion army. And I felt embarrassed, gentle listeners, to trouble you with the historical events that are so clearly poorly supported. But now I can hold my head high and speak of the numbers with pride. At the time, the Yorkists 
reckoned they had close to 50,000 and the Lancastrians 60,000. But applying the modern lens of scepticism, we end up with a Yorkist army of somewhere between 25 and 30,000 and a Lancastrian army somewhat bigger, maybe as many as 35,000. But whatever the actual number, these are massive armies for the time. The Battle of Towton coming up is the biggest and bloodiest battle ever to take place on English soil. And it seems appropriate. This was the showdown, the big one, which for at least for a while will settle a lot of those scores. Incidentally, there is a Towton Battlefield Society and they have a fantastic site at towton.org.uk with loads of information and an excellent map. Well worth a visit. The Lancastrian army under Somerset had based themselves outside York and their first priority was to harass and delay the Yorkist advance. By the time they'd reached Pontefract on the 17th of March, a royal castle some 28 miles south of York, Edward and Falkenberg's contingents had been reunited. Their next job was to negotiate the River Eyre. Now the best option was the bridge, a few miles north of them at Ferry Bridge. An alternative, though, was the old Roman ford at Castleford, a few miles upriver. But this was March. It was a cold March. The river would be high and the ford not reliable. So Edward sent one of his commanders, Lord Fitzwalter, with a team of engineers to secure the bridge at Ferry Bridge. Of course, Somerset knew Edward had relatively few options and had damaged the bridge and he now sent his best mobile contingent to make life as hard as possible for the Yorkists, to slow them up, cause some damage, keep him informed, as he moved the Lancastrian host south from York to a defensive position at Towton, about 15 miles south of York. Now his best mobile contingent came from the northern borders. We've talked about the tough life of the Reavers, hard fighters who knew how to move fast, lightly armed, mounted on tough ponies. This mobile contingent of 500 men were called the Flower of Craven and were led by the border lord Clifford, the man who'd butchered young Edmund of Rutland on the bridge at Wakefield. When the Yorkist Fitzwalter arrived at the bridge, Clifford was already there. Valuable men and time was lost as Fitzwalter tried and failed to take the bridge on a narrow front and lost his life for his pains. Repulsed, some of the men must have taken the story of the reverse back to Warwick and there's a lovely story as a result. Ever one for a bit of swashbuckling and drama, Warwick violently overreacted and galloped furiously back to the main camp in a lather of sweat, threw himself off his horse, roaring that the enemy were upon them, killed his horse in front of the bemused king, drew his sword and roared that he would not budge an inch from this spot. Clearly the kingmaker had been reading his classics and knew this was what Spartacus had done when finally cornered. Lord knows how he managed to get out of his pose without hideous amounts of mickey-taking when it became clear that no one was actually going to turn up. Maybe Edward asked him if he wouldn't mind budging from the spot just for a bit of supper. Who knows? Anyway, as it happened, Edward had talented commanders too. Lord Falkenberg duly took his own mobile force crossed the river air at Castleford upstream to flank Clifford's men. Realising the danger and well satisfied with the job he'd already achieved, Clifford withdrew towards Towton and safety. But Falkenberg wasn't done. Edward needed information, so he and his mounted archers tracked the Flower of Craven. 
and at a place called Dintingdale, they saw their chance for an ambush to take revenge for the death of Edmund of Rutland. Just a few miles south of the main body, tired after a night march and day of fighting, Clifford paused the troop for a rest, and as they rested, he removed his metal neck guard to take a drink of wine. An arrow smashed through his throat, and within minutes Clifford was dead. And before long, the rest of the flower of Craven had been slaughtered or fled. The engagement at Ferry Bridge had been a tactical success for Lancaster, the result at Dintingdale a blow for the morale for Lancaster. Strategically, it delayed the Yorkist advance by a day, which was to have a crucial impact in the end, as you'll see. With the bridgehead over the air secured, the main body of the Yorkist army advanced, possibly leaving Warwick standing in the camp by a dead horse waving his sword around. They advanced with a thin screen of cavalry ahead to clear the way and make sure there were no counterattacks. With all the baggage and armour and the pinch point of the bridge, it would have been midnight before cold, wet and tired, Edward's army was in place between the villages of Saxton and Towton. The morning of the 29th of March 1461 was Palm Sunday. In York, Henry VI begged Margaret and Somerset to delay the battle to a less holy day, a request which was understandably ignored. And instead, in the cold light of dawn, Somerset would have looked with some satisfaction at his position. He'd chosen a place where he couldn't easily be outflanked. On his right flank ran the Cockbeck, a pretty titchy narrow stream in summer, but now swollen by the rains to run deep, fast and cold. On the left flank, his army was bounded by marshy ground. The battle would take place on the plateau south of Towton, but the Lancastrian position was significantly higher than the Yorkist one. Somerset had set a trap, and to become king, Edward had to walk into it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's not clear who commanded all of the battles on each side. We know that Northumberland commanded the right flank for Lancaster and Somerset the centre. Exeter may have commanded the other flank or possibly Trollope. On York's side, the centre would have been held by Edward, the right by Falkenberg. And you'd guess the left by Warwick, but we don't actually know. The participation in the Battle of Towton was very wide. If anything gives the lie to the argument that the nobility stood by indifferently and watched York and Lancaster slug it out, then it's Towton. Even that arch-trimmer, Thomas Stanley, was actually engaged in the battle on the side of York. It's true to say that the Lancastrians were far better represented by the nobility, but the side of York was not empty of magnates. They could boast the Earls of Essex and Arundel in addition to the Earl of Warwick and Duke of Norfolk. 
And one of the enormously exciting things I have to tell you on the Towton website is a list of all the noble combatants. Imagine my joy. I'll post the links so you can share in that joy. The weather was bitterly cold and it was blowing a gale and it was snowing. What Somerset couldn't have planned for was that the gale and the snow was blowing straight into the faces of the Lancastrian archers. On the Yorkist side there was bad news too. Norfolk hadn't yet arrived with 5,000 men expected, which meant the Yorkists were seriously underpowered, maybe 20,000 against 30,000. But nonetheless, it was Falkenberg on the Yorkist right who started proceedings, ordering his archers to advance and fire a single volley into the tightly packed Lancastrian ranks. And the volley hit home hard. In fury, the Lancastrians responded with multiple volleys, but into the wind and unsighted by the snow, the arrows fell short. With more fresh ammunition, and now with the range, the Yorkist archers started to cause mayhem and mincemeat. And so Somerset ordered his army forward on foot. There was no point in just standing there, taking the damage and the pain. And so on they came. When the Lancastrian charge struck, the Yorkist line buckled and almost broke under the weight of numbers. And at this point, Edward earned his stripes. Edward, as we have said, I think, was a tall young man, six foot four, massive by the standards of the day, and well built. Up and down the line, Edward went with his standard and bodyguard, entering the fight wherever there was trouble, shoring up the defence. He couldn't help but look good when compared to Henry sat back in York, mathering about Palm Sunday. And the Yorkist line held. What followed then was a hideous struggle and battle of attrition without any subtlety that we know of. It was cold, bloody, hard, pushing, shoving, hacking stuff. Slowly, step by step, the army of York was being pushed back. In the struggle, it's probable that the line swung round out of its original alignment, maybe 90 degrees anti-clockwise, so that the Lancastrians now had the cockbeck at their backs. And then at some point, hope and relief for York appeared in the form of Norfolk and his men, and they fell on the Lancastrian flank. Now, you might have expected that that would be the straw that broke the camel's back, and if there had been a camel around, a jolly cold one it would have been. But it doesn't seem to have done so. In fact, the balance was redressed and the battle fought on. Now, most of the other battles we've had had been short affairs. Northampton was only 30 minutes, for example. But Towton was brutal, hour after hour of agony. At various points, the lines of men had to stop and separate. The dead bodies were dragged away. A shout went up. The armies clashed again. Both armies knew this was a fight to the death. There was no chivalry here. Edward had ordered there to be no quarter. No prisoner should be taken, nor one enemy saved, he'd commanded. Both sides would know that the real slaughter came when the armies ran, and that neither had safety close to them. If they ran, the Lancastrians would now be trapped rather than defended by the cockback. For the Yorkists, the river air was not far, and the countryside open and perfect for cavalry to cut fleeing men on foot to pieces. And so, with increasing desperation, both sides fought on. We don't know what broke the stalemate. 
It could have been the death or injury of a key commander. We know that the Earl of Northumberland died in the battle, for example. Maybe it was the death of Andrew Trollope, the captain of Calais, who'd become such a visible leader of the Lancastrian military, which broke morale. Or it could have been the death of Lord Dacre, another influential northern lord. But whatever it was, it was the Lancastrian line that broke first. And now the situation was transformed. Small groups of running men were vulnerable. Yorkist lords and retainers ran for their horses and the battlefield was a picture of broken and dying and fighting men. Many run down the sharp hill towards the Cockbeck and were caught before they could reach it and the area to this day is called Bloody Meadow. The Cockbeck itself was clogged with the dead and the fleeing. The bridge over the Beck collapsed. One estimate had it that 20,000 men died. Probably an exaggeration, but the slaughter was clearly hideous. The spirit of vicious and vindictive civil war was alive and kicking, with no quarter given. 42 noble members on the Lancastrian side alone lost their head. Which brings us a new king and a new rule to look at, and hurrah for that! We're not finished with Henry VI, of course, but for the moment he and his queen are wading through the poo and a long way from the corridors of power. So, let us spend the rest of this episode considering the character and reputation of Edward IV. At 19 years old, Edward had already carved out a fine reputation amongst the leaders and men he'd met. As I believe I have mentioned a couple of times, he was very tall and considered good-looking. The task is to put the surviving paintings of him out of your mind, since he looks positively bovine. Clearly, it can't be a good likeness. Edward had been bred and taught to be a magnate, not a king, but had most of the qualities needed to be a good king, whether taught or not, on the same principle that no amount of teaching could turn Henry's sow's ear into a royal silk purse. Edward had shown many of his good qualities already in the campaigns of 1460 and 61, decisive, energetic and fast-thinking, a steely will and determination to win great personal bravery, an ability to inspire and lead. He had a sharp mind and excellent memory and trust and confidence in his own judgment and abilities. Edward was charming, and usually he had a friendly, courtly manner and was keen to spread a feeling of good cheer and bonhomie, while retaining the royal temper so useful to make people hop every so often. He had a reputation of being open and friendly to everyone of whatever background, which sometimes earned him some negative noble criticism. Hobnobbing with the great unwashed wasn't really a talent widely valued in the Middle Ages. There was a big streak of vanity in this. He liked wearing his finery, showing himself off, even after he'd got to the age when really he should have known better. Because Edward also loved luxury. He spent a lot of time building in the royal palaces. He loved parties and good things, and he was a famous and enthusiastic lover, and when the time came, an enthusiastic adulterer. He was greedy both for money and comfort, and as a result, very much like Henry VIII, towards the end of his life he became grossly fat. His desire for luxury made him greedy and avaricious, to an extent that later in his reign would make him vulnerable. He was to chase after a French pension in the most unattractive way. And it was these last attributes of greed and love of a good time that were the only negative attributes that his contemporaries could find for him. 
The Crowland Chronicle was written by someone basically sympathetic to Edward, but perfectly capable of criticism. And he wrote about Edward's great talents as a governor of men, of his confidence, political acumen and intelligence. But he also lamented that he could be, quote, such a gross man, so addicted to conviviality, vanity, drunkenness, extravagance and passion. An Italian clergyman and scholar described Edward as licentious in the extreme and wrote that Edward pursued with no discrimination the married and unmarried, the noble and lowly. Outside of this, contemporaries were pretty much unrestrained in their praise and you can understand why. Here was a man who restored peace after years of chaos, death and destruction, who managed to convert himself from a leader of a rebellious faction into a fine king, who gave England peace once more and made her once more respected by foreign powers. And this view continued into and through the 16th and 17th centuries, with the likes of Thomas More, Edward Hall, Polydor Virgil and Holinshed. But then... A worm eats its way into the apple of history with the French historian Rapin, who reflected the views of the French contemporary of Edward, Philippe de Comines. Now Edward was presented as debauched, vicious, cruel, greedy and lazy, capable of stirring himself ashore, but only when an absolute crisis appeared. And this now became the prevailing view for 150 years or more, enthusiastically picked up, of course, by William Stubbs, the Victorian historian, bishop, moralist and lover of the concept of happy progress towards the light of parliamentary democracy. In addition to Edward's philandering, which of course did not go down well with your average Victorian, Stubbsy had rather liked the Lancastrian period because there had been a reliance on Parliament, particularly under Henry IV and the minority of Henry VI. Edward was very different, so it was a good opportunity for Stubbsy to lay into him. Let me give you a flavour with some passages picked out by Charles Ross, one of Edward's modern biographers. Edward IV was not perhaps quite so bad a man or so bad a king as his enemies have represented, but even those writers who have laboured hardest to rehabilitate him have failed to discover any conspicuous merits. He was a man vicious far beyond anything England had seen since the days of John, and more cruel and bloodthirsty than any king she had ever known. Which is harsh. Around 1878, a historian called J.R. Green, who while continuing the vicious theme, saw some method and greatness in it. A sort of typical Renaissance prince approach. Vicious, yeah, but with purpose. So Green saw in Edward a conscious move towards a new monarchy. It was Edward, not the Tudors, who, according to Green, created the centralised and administratively efficient monarchy. Modern historians of the 20th century then returned largely to the more positive view of Edward and his achievements and talents. Historians such as Lander, Myers, Holmes and Macfarlane recognised the king with fixity of purpose, clarity of vision, an iron will and the necessary ruthlessness. The talents needed to deliver England the wealth, stability and prosperity it needed so badly. Here's a quote from another modern historian, S.B. Crimes. He did much to consolidate the monarchy, to rehabilitate its finances and restore its prestige. He went far to remedy the lack of political rule 
that had brought Henry VI to disaster. He was not to be led astray by Henry V's dreams. He grasped firmly the financial nettles which Henry IV had either evaded or sown. He achieved much that Richard II had tried but failed to do. The foundations of what has commonly been called the new monarchy were laid out not by Henry VII but by Edward IV. In fact, there's then been the inevitable swing back. The more recent studies, Charles Ross among them, have been willing to accept that Edward IV had many achievements and talents to his name, but not keen to accept that here is an early modern rather than late medieval king, reluctant to credit him with a conscious policy to establish a new independent monarchy run on modern administrative lines. They see instead a king determined to gather the wealth needed to avoid placing the financial burdens on the country that had contributed to Henry VI's downfall. There's been more emphasis on the fact that in some of his policies, such as the rise of the Woodvilles, Edward bore some responsibility for what happens afterwards. So there we are, folks. It's 1461. We have a new king. And it's been a year to rival 1450 in its vicissitudes. And in April 1461, it would have been a brave man that, despite the brutal nature of Towton, hung his bassinet helmet on this being the start of a period of stability and peace. Edward had yet to establish his rule, and that's exactly what we'll turn to next time. For the moment, a few notices. Please tune in to the History of the Papacy podcast, this month's featured podcast from the Agora Podcast Network. And do visit our Hoopy website, agorapodcastnetwork.com, where you'll find oodles of other independently-minded podcasters. My thanks to my beloved monthly donators, Kathy, Jim, Jabal, Cool and Matthew, and to new donators this month, Mark, Daniel and David, and through Flatter, David and Tudor Queen. And thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes and all that sort of thing, and to all of you who listen in. Good luck everyone, and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 